Uh, let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, greetings, uh, members and guests. We're so glad that you're here with us to adore our God and hear his word and respond with faith and obedience. You're invited to open the word of God to the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and we will be meditating together on verses 1 through 17. Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Let's hear God's word together. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another." Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, to you into your holy presence through your son, Jesus Christ, and we praise you as our maker, sustainer, and savior. Father, you've given each of us one life to live, and however long that life is, it's inevitably short. Father, we ask this morning that we would not waste this one life that you've bestowed upon us. We ask, Heavenly Father, that through your word and spirit, you would grant us to bear much fruit for your glory and the good of those around us. Heavenly Father, grant that through your Holy Spirit, we build something of eternal significance for the honor of your name during this life. Let us not become preoccupied with wealth and comfort and ease and pleasure. Let us be single-minded in our commitment to honoring you and serving you and others. And grant at the end of this life to, that we would look back with gratitude for all that you have done through us. Let us not waste our lives, Father, but grant through your spirit that we might bear much fruit. And we pray that you would use your word this morning to that end. Prick us, prick our conscience where we need to repent. Comfort us where we need encouragement. And make us in every way more fruitful. Amen. Oops. Uh, there's, so there's a season in life 
you know, about junior, senior year of high school, where the pressing question is, what, I'm gonna, what am I going to do with my life? What am, I, what am I going to make of this one life that's been given to me? At that point, life is all future, and so we think, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to college, not go to college? If I go to college, what am I going to major in? That's the pressing question. We live another decade, Lord willing, and uh, your life comes into sharper focus. You kind of see the trajectory that you're on. And at that point, the question, the question becomes, um, am I living the life I should be living? The, uh, earlier in life, it was, uh, what sort of life should I pursue? And the present is, am I, li- am I living the life that I should be living? Is this the life that I'm supposed to be living? And of course, we come to the end of life, and we look back, and the inevitable question is, uh, not how should I live, but how have I lived? What has been the result of this short time on earth? And of course, this question that we pose to ourselves at various stages of our lives is just another way of asking, how can I live a fruitful life? How can I produce fruit, to use the language of Jesus, fruit that will abide, fruit that will have eternal significance? How can I avoid wasting this one life and do something for the honor of God and the good of my fellow man that will truly last? This passage tells us how we can lead a fruitful life, producing fruit that will last forever and honor God. And uh, we're told that fruitfulness results from three things in this passage. First, a fruitful life results from the Father's pruning. Fruitful life results from the Father's pruning. Second, a fruitful life results from union with Christ. Spiritual union with Christ. And third, a fruitful life results from prayer. So the first thing we see is fruitfulness comes from the Father's pruning. Look at verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And here he is contrasting himself with Israel. God's old covenant people. The Old Testament, uh, an image that is frequently used of Israel is the vine. It's used in various places. For example, Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. Uh, the, The psalmist writes, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. So Israel was God's vine. But the problem with Israel is that it didn't produce fruit. God wanted good, plump grapes, and Israel didn't produce them. If they did produce fruit, it was sour grapes, as the prophet Isaiah says. God wanted a people who would produce fruit, fruit that would abide. And Jesus is saying, in contrast to the defective vine, I'm the true vine. My life is characterized by utmost commitment to God and a life of utter obedience to the Father. But it's not just that Jesus is fruitful in his own life. By our union with Christ... Uh, we become fruitful. So Jesus is the vine also in the sense that not only is he fruitful in his own life, but he makes his people fruitful so that we can be the people that God has always intended us to be. He's the true vine. And the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one who trims the vine that it might bear more fruit. That's one aspect of his work. But the other aspect is that he lops off every branch that does not bear fruit. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. And so the question is, what category of person is that referring to? Who are these fruitless, barren branches? The first thing we need to say is that that is not a reference to genuine believers who once truly trusted in Jesus for their salvation and then fell away. One indication of this in terms of the immediate context is that all those who are united to the vine 
uh, to Jesus bear fruit. Uh, we're told in verse 4 that all those who are connected to Jesus, he indwells them through his Holy Spirit, and they inevitably bear fruit. So fruitlessness is an indication that they didn't, didn't have the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, they would have borne spiritual fruit. So that's one indicator in the immediate context that we're not talking about genuine believers who lost their salvation. Uh, but a stronger evidence comes from the larger teaching of John's gospel. We see, for example... In John 6.39, Jesus is commenting on the mission that the Father has given to him. And he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So consider that. Jesus says, okay, here's my mission. Father has given me a people, and he wants me not to lose one that he has given to me, but wants me to raise it up on the last day. The question is, will Jesus fail in that mission? And the answer is, of course not. Every single one given to him will be raised up. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 28 makes a similar point. My sheep hear my voice, says Jesus, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All those who are in the hand of Christ will stay there and will be brought safely to the other side. Indeed, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, in another of his New Testament writings, John says, so here he's speaking about those who at one point were professing faith in Jesus and they left the church. And here's what he says about them. They went out from us, they left, but they were not of us. How do we know they were not of us? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. The sign that they were really in is that they would have continued. The fact that they didn't continue shows that in a sense, despite some outward profession of faith, they were never in. So there's a strand of teaching in John's gospel that those who belong to Christ savingly, who really trusting in him, will persevere. Now, that still leaves the question unanswered. To whom is Jesus referring through this metaphor, these uh, fruitless branches? Well, I think it's, it's important for us to answer that question within the context of John's gospel. Is there a category of person in John's gospel who consistently uh, responds positively to Jesus, professes faith at some level, but then soon after shows that they're not believers. And in fact, that's exactly what we do find in the Gospel of John. Uh, in the first instance, we see this with Judas. Uh, Judas, John 6 tells us, was never in, was never trusting the way the other apostles were, but nevertheless, he was bearing fruit. Like when they went out to do ministry together, the other apostles weren't looking at Judas and going, man, why can't he do it, right? That wasn't the dynamic. He was doing miracles with the rest of them, right? There was an outward connection, and yet Judas was never, in a sense, united to Christ. But again, this is a larger theme. If we go to John chapter 2, uh, verses 23 and 24, here's what we're told. Many believed in his name. So it sounds like faith, good. Many believed in his name, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. With the implication that there's something defective about this faith. We see that again in chapter 8. Chapter 8, John's Gospel, we're told that a group of people believe, and shortly after they want to kill Jesus and violently repudiate his message. It's a kind of superficial commitment to Jesus that fizzles out. Here's one more example. John 12, 42 and 43. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So it sounds good. Believed in him. 
But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These are, people who care. These are individuals who cared more about people than God. They're not apparently believers, and yet they believed. Right? It's just one more instance of this theme in John's gospel of people who respond at some level positively, albeit superficially to Jesus, but it's something less than true and saving faith. And in my view, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in, in verse 2. This fruitless branches, these fruitless branches are those who have some connection to him, make some sort of positive public declaration for him, but ultimately are without spiritual fruit. And it's actually pretty sobering. You can have a superficial connect, connection to Jesus, call yourself a Christian, and be without spiritual life is the implication. So one thing the Father does is he takes the barren branches, lops them off, separates them from the vine. But on the other hand, he takes, the, he takes those branches that are fruitful, that are bearing ripe, luscious grapes, and he further prunes those branches that they might bear more fruit. It's interesting that the Father doesn't look at the fruitful branch and say, okay, there, there's, there's fruit here, I'm going to leave them alone. They've achieved a sufficient level of fruit that I'm just going to leave them where they are. No, the father takes out his shears and begins to trim and clip so they would bear more fruit. I think it was uh, Lewis who said that uh, God is like a good father. A good father is easy to please and hard to satisfy. So when your child comes to you, if you're a dad with their little drawing, uh, you know, as a four-year-old, you are pleased by that drawing. You are delighted by that drawing. But you're also not going to leave them there, right? You're going to expect that they're going to make progress in their artistic abilities. And by the age of 15, you, you would not be as happy if the quality of the picture was what it was at four. Well, it's the same thing with God. God delights in our first half-step, wavering half-step of obedience. God delights in those first steps of obedience. He takes pleasure in that obedience. But being a good father, he's not satisfied. He wants more fruit and more fruit. He wants our lives to count. He doesn't want us to waste our lives. He, he wants us to produce abiding fruit for his glory and the good of others. And so he's, he's tr trimming us and working on us that we might be fruitful. Now the question is, what exactly does Jesus mean by fruit? And I think because there's nothing in this context that limits that image, uh, I think we should interpret it in the broadest possible sense as referring to all the spiritual fruit that Jesus produces in us, including character transformation. Part of the fruit that God's producing in us is he's making us like Jesus, forming that beautiful character in us, making us gentle and wise and loving, patient. Uh, but another aspect of fruit is uh, effectiveness in evangelism. God doesn't want his people to just huddle together and disregard the world. He wants to use the church as an instrument to draw people to himself. So there's evangelistic fruitfulness. He wants to make you effective in acts of service to others. He wants to make you effective as an instrument for doing spiritual good to fellow believers. Like this is all fruit that God wants to produce in your life. So he does that by pruning, trimming. What does that refer to? Well, if we just look strictly at the metaphor, trimming would suggest, because it's painful, trials, tribulations, difficulties of various kinds that God brings into our lives 
for the purpose of shaping our character, making us more useful to himself. And I think that's part of the meaning. But we should also recognize that in the original Greek, there is a close connection between the word prune in verse 2 and the word clean in verse 3, both in terms of meaning and sound. So you just hear this. You don't need, you don't, you don't need to know Greek. You just hear the two words. So prune is kathire, and clean is katharoi. Hear the connection, right? Now, because of that play on words and overlap in meaning, some have suggested that the way God prunes us is through the teaching of Jesus. He produces fruit through the word of Christ and about Christ. And I think that's accurate, but I don't think it exhausts everything intended by the word prune. So pruning includes the word spoken by Jesus, but it's more comprehensive. It's broader than that. It includes everything that God does in our lives, in my view, to bring fruitfulness, including those painful trials that form our character and cause us to be useful to the kingdom. The bottom line is this. God's heart is to make us fruitful. That's what he wants for us as a father. And here's the rub. We don't want to be fruitful. We want to be comfortable. We want ease, pleasure, an easy life. We want to uh, saunter serenely through the garden of life, to lounge on the beach, as it were. Uh, minimize pain and suffering, maximize comfort and ease. That's what we want. God, wants, God is not interested fundamentally in our comfort and ease. He's interested in making us holy and useful. And as long as we are at cross purposes with God, we're going to be in for a rough time. When his painful intrusions into our lives come, we're going to complain and grumble and resist. And the way to respond rightly, therefore, is to start wanting what God wants. To start wanting holiness, purity, and usefulness more than comfort. And when we desire that more than even our pleasure and the advancement of our self-interest, it's just easier to submit to God. In those painful seasons, we say, Lord, this is not what I would have chosen, but I know that you are using this affliction. You are using this affliction to form in me the character of your son, so I submit. And isn't that what you want in your best moments? When you're thinking most clearly and you're speaking to God, don't you say to him, God, I, I want to be useful for you and I want to be like Jesus more than I want an easy life. Do whatever it takes to make me useful, not what makes for an easy life. And at the end of life, when you look back, what, what do you want to have done? Do you want to be able to look back at the end of your life and say, well, I managed to avoid all the bullets I avoided pain and suffering for the most part. I got through it unscathed, and admittedly, I didn't achieve anything for anyone. Uh, it's been a barren life, but mercifully, I haven't been too maimed in the process. Is that what you want? Or you want to look back and see how God, through the Holy Spirit, has used you to make an impact in the lives of others, has used you to glorify him and do good to others. I mean, when you go to the grave, don't you want to die with some scars exhausted, burnt out in service to your king? We should desire fruitfulness more than comfort. So that, that's how we experience a fruitful life in the first instance. It's the work of the Father. Secondly, we experience a fruitful life through the work of the Son. It is through a spiritual union to Jesus Christ that we come to experience much fruit. Jesus says, As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Take the branch away from Jesus, and it just sits there on the ground, sad, barren, worthless. That's life without Jesus. 
devoid of fruit, barren, and worthless. It is only through union with Christ that we can produce the kind of obedience, the kind of life that is honoring to God. It is only as his life supernaturally channeled through us, uh, to us through the Holy Spirit that we can bear the kind of fruit that is pleasing to God. A fruitful life comes through this spiritual connection to Jesus. And because that's true, Jesus says, we need to abide in him. Abide in me, verse 4. How do we do that? How do we remain as branches in the vine? There are three things. In the first instance, abiding involves trusting and depending on Jesus. That's clear from the metaphor, right? Like a branch gets its life from the vine, it rests in the vine. And so we also are to walk in this life in dependence and reliance on Jesus, deriving strength from his life. We ought to be feeding on Christ for the strength that we need. The fact that we are to depend on Christ, and that's a part of abiding, is evident also from verse 3. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. But of course, the word that is spoken needs to be believed. That's how it becomes effective. It is through faith in the word that Jesus has spoken that we become clean. And that faith doesn't just cleanse us at the beginning of the Christian life, but that faith continues to keep us united to Jesus all the days of our life. So to abide in Christ is simply to trust in him, to believe in him, to go to him when there is need. Say, Lord, you've given me many responsibilities in life. Give me the power that I need to fulfill these responsibilities. It's dependence on Jesus. Second aspect, though, of abiding is that we internalize his word. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Uh, we are called to deeply internalize the truth that he proclaims, the truth that he embodies. And as we believe that truth, this is the third thing, we are transformed. When the seed of the word penetrates the dark soil of the human heart, it, just, it doesn't just sit there barren. It opens, it sprouts, it grows, it produces obedience. And that's the third thing that abiding involves. Abiding involves obedience. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Quick parenthesis here. As we work through this section of John 13 through 17, one of the things we see over and over again is the Father loves you. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Son loves you. The Son, Jesus is saying, I love you the way the Father loved me. And we don't, have, we don't need to engage in any sophisticated reading of the passage to see what Jesus is trying to say. He wants us to know that he loves us. He wants us to stand convinced that the Father loves us. The Father's arms are open wide to his children, and he always and inevitably seeks the very best for us. So don't miss that drumbeat throughout these chapters. The Father and the Son Love us. I love you, he says, the way that the Father has loved me. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So I take it that abiding in Jesus' love is roughly parallel to abiding in him. How do we abide? How do we remain in him? By walking in obedience to him. The sign that you are resting in the vine is that you are obeying Christ. Not perfectly. It's not possible in this life, but truly. The point is actually similar to what we saw last week in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We noted then, our obedience doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. 
But the inevitable sign of spiritual life is obedience. The sign that you are abiding and resting in Christ is that you are walking in the light and seeking to please the Savior. So as we trust in Jesus, walk in fellowship with him, receive his word, and obey him, we are resting in him, and we are experiencing his spiritual life. So that's what it means on our side to abide in him. But notice in verse 4, he says, if, if we abide in him, those who abide in him are also those in whom he abides. There is a mutual indwelling of, of the son and the believer. How does he abide in us? Well, we saw in the previous chapter that he does so through the Holy Spirit. Christ comes through the Holy Spirit and he dwells in us. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes and makes his home in us. We dwell in him, he dwells in us, and because of the surge of supernatural life, we are capable of bearing much fruit for the glory of God. It is this spiritual union to Jesus that enables us to say no to sin and yes to God. It is because of this union, whenever we face temptation, at every point of temptation, in principle we can say every time, no to sin and yes to God because of the supernatural power. It is because of this union that we can be effective in our evangelistic efforts. It's not just us when we open our mouths to talk about Jesus. It's not just us talking. The vine is causing his life to flow through us to bring blessing to others. It is because of this union that we can effectively serve other people, do good to them, Good that will bless them for a lifetime and indeed for eternity. It is because of this union with Christ, this spiritual union. Do you realize that you're united to Jesus in this way? That like a branch connected to the vine, his life flows into you through the Holy Spirit. There's a profoundly intimate and spiritual union between you and the Savior. Work out the implications. Consider all that that means for how you live. Let me give you two, though. won't let you do all the work by yourself. Uh, first implication, if you're not united to Jesus, you are a barren branch. There is no fruit. I stress that point because many people think that their lives are full of fruit outside of Jesus. The self-perception of many people is, I'm basically a good person. I volunteer. I give generously. I'm a great coworker. I always remember everybody's birthdays. Bring in cake. I'm a thoughtful spouse. I'm, there's fruit. I'm good. And if you think about yourself in that way, then you won't feel that you need a savior, which God says you do. Here's the irony. All of the good things that you take pride in are actually obstacles to a relationship with God. What you need to see is that you're a dead and barren branch with no fruit in the sight of God. As far as God is concerned, there is nothing in your life that is honoring to him. And what that should do is it should drive you to despair of whatever good you think you have. And it should cause you to trust in Jesus who alone can make us right with God. Don't lean on your own goodness. Lean on Jesus because, because he alone can take away our guilt and shame and purify us in the sight of God so we can have a relationship with him. And he alone, uh, Jesus alone is the one who can cause us to bear fruit for the glory of God. Look to him, not yourself. Second implication though, for those of you who are abiding in Jesus and he's abiding in you, that should produce a level of confidence and expectation. So often we look at our weaknesses and limitations and we say, I can't, Lord. I can't talk to that person about Jesus because I'm so ignorant. It's not my gift. Well, more fundamental than your gift is the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. So you might have limitations. I have limitations. We all have limitations. 
But we don't act on the basis of our limitations. We act on the basis of our confidence that Jesus Christ is indwelling us. Right? If he's in us, then we should take courage and open our mouths. When we see someone distraught, discouraged, we're reluctant to open scripture. I know so little about scripture, I don't know what to say. Right? We look at our limitations. What we should be focusing on is, I'm connected to Jesus. The life of the vine is surging within me. And so I, I can't do it, but he can, and so I'm going to open my mouth in confidence in him. Is there that con- kind of confidence in the way that you live? We are united to Christ spiritually, and because of that, we can bear much fruit for the glory of God. Now, we've noticed that part of what abiding means, means obeying Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to describe, in verses 12 through 14, more specifically, what it means to obey his commands. He says, what I want you to see as the center of your obedience is obviously love for God, but also love for others. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In 13, Jesus has already said, I'm giving you a new commandment, that's to love one another. Now you should read that and go, wait a minute, it's not new. We read it in the Old Testament, God calls his people to love each other. In what sense is it new? Well, it's new in the sense that uh, the standard is new. We are told not simply to love, but to love as Jesus loved us. And how did he love us? By giving up absolutely everything for us, by dying in our place. And that's how you should love one another. You want to know what it means to be a Christian? To follow Christ, to obey my commands? Look at the cross. Look at Christ dying in love for his friends, for his people. And that's the pattern of your life. You surrender your interests, your advantages for the good of others. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for their friends. There is no higher love that you can exhibit than to die for someone. In this context, we need to think carefully about what friends means. Friends, just to be clear, doesn't mean that there's a mutual relationship between Jesus and his disciples. He commands, they obey. That's clear from the context. To be friends with Jesus in this context means that they are told what he is going to do. He lets them in on his plan. That's the sense in which they are his friends. And his marching orders to them and to us, his command to them, is to love each other as he has loved us. What does Jesus want from you? He wants you to love your brothers and sisters in the first instance the way he has loved you. He wants you to disadvantage yourself for the sake of it, bringing advantage and benefit to others. He wants to spend, you to spend yourself and empty yourself so other people can be filled He wants you to sacrifice free time and money and energy uh, for the sake of bringing good to your brothers and sisters. And one way you can sort of tell this is beginning to happen in your life is that there is an increasing other awareness. Most of us by nature are preoccupied with our own interests, what we want, how things are going with us. We know our troubles and heartaches and we have our goals and we're pretty focused on those things. But you know that you're beginning to take steps towards sacrificial love when you notice. When you notice that there's a single mother who's struggling and you quietly offer to provide babysitting. When you notice that someone hasn't come to church in a few weeks and you reach out to them. Uh, when you notice that there's some lonely soul in your neighborhood who doesn't have any, anybody around and you invite them to dinner. When you start noticing the needs around you and taking steps even at great personal cost, to meet those needs, you're beginning to learn something about sacrificial love. 
when we come across a commandment like this, this is my commandment that you love one another, it's important for us not to simply go, that's nice. Yes, Lord, I, I feel loving today towards, in the abstract towards my fellow brothers and sisters. Great. I want to be loving. But it's important for us to take the practical step of considering how exactly we do this. One of the ways we evade the teachings of Christ is we never ask, how exactly am I doing this? We just go, yeah, it's good. Love. Move on. But Jesus wants you to consider specifically, what are the needs that you see around you right now in this church or in your community? And how specifically and concretely can you meet those needs? Take some time to prayerfully consider that. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your attention needs where God wants you to help out. We're not called in the first instance to love with our feelings. We're called to love through action. As John Stott says, a true love for people leads to labor for them. Otherwise, it degenerates into mere sentimentality. How concretely through specific acts of obedience can you serve the people around you? Consider that. Pray about that. And finally, we experience fruit. We experience fruit through the Father's pruning, spiritual union with the Son. And here's the final one. We experience fruitfulness through prayer. Crucial theme in this passage. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you're walking with Jesus, trusting in him, loving him, seeking to obey him, seeking to impact others for him, he says, if you pray and you're walking with me, I'm going to answer those prayers. And there's a parallel between answered prayer in verse 7 and fruit in verse 8. So the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Uh, sorry, it's 9. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. There's a parallel between answered prayer and fruit. The fruit will come as God answers your prayer. Now we should be clear, this is not, prayer is not an alternative to action. There are all kinds of things that God calls us to do and we should do them, but we should do them prayerfully. We should say, Lord, I'm going to open my mouth to talk to this person about you. Bless it. And we, we shouldn't be surprised this text is saying what he does. When we pray for failing marriages and say, Lord, glorify your name and heal it, we should not be surprised when he answers that prayer. When, when we pray, Lord, help me to be effective in raising my kids and forming them, he will answer that prayer. He will make us fruitful. The path to fruitfulness is persistent prayer. That's how God gets things done in the world, through prayer and the activity of his people. We see this throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 6, 19 through 20, Paul writes, Pray that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's an interesting request. So he's asking these Ephesian Christians to pray for him, a seasoned apostle, so that he would be able to open his mouth and communicate the gospel properly. And indeed to do it with boldness, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Seasoned missionary though he was, the apostle Paul knew that there could be no fruit in his ministry without the prayer of God's people. Fruit comes through prayer. Incidentally, I think one application is to pray, pray for your preacher and ministry of the church. We're all in this together. You know, let's pray for each other. Colossians 4.3. Pray also for us, 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So pray that there would be openings for the gospel to be preached. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Pray for us that when we preach the gospel, people would hear it and there would be a response. There would be faith. All of those kinds of fruit come in answer to the prayers of God's people. Are you praying that God would convert people in your life? That God would intervene and work powerfully in the world and advance his kingdom? Those who pray will see fruit. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Jeremiah Landfear. Some of you may be uh, familiar with this particular anecdote. But in the 18, late 1850s, there was a massive economic recession in New York. Uh, something, you know, factories were closed. Something like 30,000 men were idle and unemployed. And there was a church in downtown New York that brought on this businessman, Jeremiah Landfear, to, to help them reach out to the local community to bring people into the church. He was a businessman with a zeal for the Lord, so they said, why don't you help us do this? And he felt the burden of that responsibility. He said, I've got to pray. So what he did, he, says, every, he said, every Wednesday from 12 to 1 o'clock, I and whoever else wants to come with me, will gather, we will gather together and we will pray. And we will see what God does in response to that prayer. So the first time he does it, he puts out these notices, and he shows up, 12 o'clock, Nobody there. He waits five minutes, nothing. 20 minutes, no one is there. Then by 12.30, someone comes in, and they conclude successfully with six people having showed up to that first session. Well, uh, by, by the next meeting, there are 40 people who show up to pray. And in six months, 10,000 individuals, businessmen, workers in New York, are involved in this prayer ministry. And uh, one author notes that roughly within the next two years, roughly a million converts were added to American churches. Undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city, and it was of such an order to make the whole nation curious. There was no fanaticism, no hysteria, simply an incredible movement of people to pray. Jesus powerfully answers our prayers. God powerfully answers our prayers to radically advance his kingdom and cause us to bear fruit in the world. Are you praying? John Piper in his book, Desiring God, gives us what he thinks is one reason Christians don't pray as they ought. And here's his reason. Unless I'm badly mistaken, one of the main reasons so many of God's children don't have a significant life of prayer is not so much that we don't want to, but that we don't plan to. We get up day after day and realize that significant times of prayer should be part of our life, but nothing's ever ready. We don't know where to go. Nothing has been planned. No time, no place, no procedure. If you want renewal in your life of prayer, you must plan to see it. So if someone were to ask you, what's your plan for prayer? What times every day have you allotted for prayer? How, what's your method for prayer? Would you be able to tell, tell that person? Here's when I pray and how I pray. Lasting fruitfulness, having a life that counts, comes from persistent prayer, spiritual union with Christ, and the pruning work of the Father. Those who live this way will not have lived in vain, but will have lived for the glory of God and the good of others. May he help us more and more to produce fruit for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask in the name of our Savior Jesus, simply for this, make us fruitful. Amen.